Benedict XVI, the first person in 600 years to be an ex-pope, dies at 95. His 2013 resignation shocked the Catholic Church and made way for the current pontiff, Pope Francis. I'm Alina Selyuk. And I'm Emily Fang. And this is Up First from NPR News. The Vatican says the German pontiff's body will lie in state at St. Peter's Basilica next week. Also, heavy Russian missile strikes on Ukraine. We have the latest. And after years of legal wrangling, former President Donald Trump's taxes have been released to the public. So stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your weekend. And first up, we go to Rome, where the Vatican says it's remembering a, quote, humble worker in the vineyard of the Lord. As Pope Benedict focused on doctrine, as Pope Emeritus, he lived quietly at the Vatican. NPR's Silvia Pajoli joins us now from Rome with more. Hi, Silvia. Hi, Alina. Tell us what the Vatican said this morning. Well, in a very brief statement, the Vatican spokesman said, With sorrow, I inform you that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI passed away today at 934 in the Mater Ecclesia Monastery in the Vatican. And uh, he supplied some information a little bit later on the details of the funeral. Benedict was Pope for nearly eight years. What is he remembered most for? Well, his efforts to revive Christianity in a secularized Europe, which he uh, saw as threatened by what he called the dictatorship of relativism, um, those efforts were overshadowed by many crises. His papacy was haunted by clerical abuse scandals and missteps that offended Jews and Muslims. And Vatican power struggles also showed that he had little control over the Holy See's bureaucracy. In terms of clerical sex abuse scandals, uh, they erupted all over the world under his papacy, but Benedict is credited with starting the process to discipline or defrock uh, predator priests. Mm. It's an issue that had been more or less ignored or even played down um, under his predecessor, John Paul II. Uh, Benedict ordered an inquiry into the Irish Catholic Church that led to several resignations of bishops, and he disciplined Father Martial Maciel, founder of the Legionaries of Christ and one of the Catholic Church's most notorious predators. And yet just this year, an independent report in Benedict's homeland, Germany, alleged he had failed to take action in four cases when he was Archbishop of Munich from 1977 to 1982. Difficult legacy. Um, Benedict eventually became the first pope to retire in modern times, as we'd mentioned. Tell us about that. Well, it was a huge shock. And by doing so, one of the most conservative popes in recent memory charted a really a radical new course for the papacy. Some scholars say it was revolutionary. In fact, his successor, Pope Francis, has uh, spoken openly of the possibility of his resignation should he feel he cannot fulfill his duties. How has the church changed since Benedict retired? Well, you know, Francis is widely seen as the other side of the pendulum swing from conservative to progressive. And, you know, in fact, willingly or not, Benedict in retirement in a monastery on Vatican grounds became a kind of rallying point for conservatives who opposed Francis's liberalizing moves in the Catholic Church. Uh, Francis has a much greater emphasis on mercy as opposed to Benedict's insistence on strict rules uh, on morality. Sylvia, we know generally what happens when a serving pope dies. You'd mentioned we got some details on the upcoming funeral. So what happens in this case, the death of a retired pope? 
Uh, there are very elaborate rules for the funeral of a reigning pope, but no known ones for a former pope. Uh, the last pope to resign some 600 years ago reverted to being a cardinal, and his funeral rite was that of cardinals. The Vatican has said that the Benedict's body would lie in state from Monday in St. Peter's Basilica, and the spokesman said the funeral will take place Thursday in St. Peter's Square, and Pope Francis will preside. And the spokesman, Matteo Bruni, added, in accordance with the emeritus pope's desires, the funeral will be marked by simplicity. That's NPR's Silvia Pajoli in Rome. Silvia, thank you. Thank you. It's a somber New Year's Eve in Kiev, marking the end of a year almost entirely under attack. And 2023 will open with no end in sight to the fighting. Russia has unleashed another barrage of airstrikes across the country over this week. And yet, some Ukrainians are still trying to celebrate. NPR's Tim Mack joins us now from Kyiv. Hi, Tim. Hey there. So it's the end of another year, and nearly a full year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine started. You've covered much of it. This far into the war, where do things stand? Well, 10 months in, it's not like almost anyone expected when the war started in February. Kyiv was supposed to be controlled by Russian troops within days. Instead, Kyiv is solidly within Ukrainian control. And the mayor of Kyiv has actually said in the last day that the population is now returning to close its pre-war total. But that's Kyiv. Uh, fighting continues in the east and south of the country. There's fighting over towns in the Donbass with not much strategic value other than the land that is held by either side. It seems like it's kind of developing into a stalemate at the moment. And amid that, Russia is relying on airstrikes. Dozens and dozens of rockets and missiles were fired on the country on Thursday, and that's a larger barrage than it has been in the past. As they have been for months, uh, the Russian military has been targeting energy infrastructure, and that's been leaving millions of Ukrainians, marking the new year without power and heat. Hmm. The new year is supposed to be a time to look forward to what's to come. Does anyone in Ukraine see an end to this war? You know, this is something people have been mentioning a lot in interviews recently. You know, what would the end of the war even mean? Is it just when the fighting ends or when justice is achieved for the wrongs they believe have happened here? Uh, this week, I visited what people call the Missile Graveyard in Kharkiv. That's a city in northeast Ukraine where the Russian border is just over 20 miles away. Now, the Missile Graveyard is a place where the local government has gathered all the remnants of missiles and rockets and shells that have fallen in the city. And there's evidence there of more than 3,000 alleged attacks on th that city alone. That's wow. according to the local prosecutor. Uh, Brigadier General Serhii Melnik is in charge of the defense of Kharkiv. He's got a legal background. He says that right now the main priority for their investigators is to gather evidence of commanders that were in charge of strikes against civilians of their city. The prosecutor general of Ukraine, the entire country, has opened investigations into more than 60,000 cases of alleged war crimes so far. Given all that, it's New Year's Eve in Kyiv. How is that city celebrating, if at all? Well, Kyiv is normally a bustling, exciting city on a night like this. It's important to note that martial law is still in place, uh, and in Kyiv there's a curfew of 11 p.m. Fireworks are also banned here and in places closer to the front line, such as Kharkiv. 
It hasn't stopped people from trying, though. There's this viral video that's making the rounds on social media where a woman in Kyiv reacts to someone setting off loud fireworks in her neighborhood. Amid these loud bangs, she says she thinks she's nearly had a heart attack and then curses at the people setting them off. It's a reflection of why fireworks are banned, because in Kyiv, loud explosions can mean death. So many people here are obviously traumatized by the events of the past year. That is NPR's Tim Mack in Kiev. Tim, thanks for all that you do. Thank you. Donald Trump has said he would release his tax returns and never did. So a congressional committee did it for him now almost two years after his presidency. The Democratic-led House Ways and Means Committee took the unusual step Friday after a years-long fight to obtain the records. It's hundreds of pages of lines and numbers and wading through it all for us. NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Hi, Domenico. Hey, Alina. Let's get right into it. We've been waiting for these returns for years. What do they show? Well, the tax returns are from six years, 2015 to 2020, Trump's last year in office. They're lengthy and complicated, but some of what they show is that since Trump declared for president in 2015, he's claimed millions of dollars in losses for his businesses, years of negative personal income, and he paid little or no taxes in multiple years. Uh, This is someone who ran on being a successful businessman, and yet his businesses from his Turnberry Golf Course in Scotland to his now-sold hotel in Washington, D.C according to these records, appeared to have sustained some significant losses. Uh, The returns uh, raise lots of questions as well about the details of the losses because the higher the claimed losses, the more it reduces his tax liability. For instance, he claimed a $21 million deduction involving a New York property and whether it was overvalued. Of course, recently his company, the Trump Organization, was convicted of decades of tax fraud and schemes. Why did the committee want these records in the first place? Well, the committee has oversight over the IRS, and it wanted to see if the agency had complied with mandatory presidential audits. Trump had fought the release but lost at the Supreme Court. And what the committee found was that the IRS had not done audits in each of Trump's years as president. In fact, it only even started on one. The IRS said these tax returns are so complicated, it didn't have the resources to evaluate and investigate Trump's finances, which in and of itself is a pretty stunning thing. But there have been decades of the IRS being underfunded and not having the resources to conduct the audits necessary. It's something Democrats have really tried to fix. Republicans have fought against it, claiming that the IRS would target conservatives. Just to show how complicated Trump's taxes are compared to other presidents, the Wall Street Journal noted that after one audit, the Bidens were owed more money from the government, and in another year, they owed an additional $13. So not even in the same ballpark. Right. So we've learned a lot from these documents. Why did the committee release them now? I imagine there's been quite a bit of pushback from Republicans. Yeah, well, this Congress is coming to an end and Republicans are set to take control very shortly. Uh, They're definitely not happy. You know, the former president, you can imagine, uh, not happy in particular. He warned that it's a two-way street and also defended himself, saying that his deductions were part of an incentive to create jobs. Kevin Brady is the ranking Republican member of the committee, said that 
Democrats unleashed a, quote, dangerous political weapon that reaches beyond the former president and could have implications for average people's privacy protections. Democrats, on the other hand, say that this was done in the public's interest. Don Beyer of Virginia was one of the committee's members and said, for example, Trump used questionable or poorly substantiated deductions and a number of other tax avoidance schemes, he said, which people can now see evidence of. And Bayer added that the returns show how tax laws are inequitable, benefiting the wealthy, and that enforcement just is not just. That's NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. And that's up first for Saturday, December 31st, 2022. I'm Emily Fang. And I'm Alina Selyuk. Andrew Craig, Samantha Balaban, Fernando Naro, and Ashley Lizenby produced this Saturday version of Up First. Hadil Alshachi, Melissa Gray, Ed McNulty, and Deep Arvaz edit. Our directors are Danny Hensel and Michael Radcliffe. Alex Drewinskis and Hannah Glovna are the technical directors, along with help from many engineers who help us sound our very best. Eva Stone is our supervising editor, Sarah Oliver is our executive producer, and Jim Kane is our deputy managing editor. And all those people also lend their talents to Weekend Edition as well. Hear more of what you found here on the radio. Tune in every Saturday and Sunday morning. Look up your NPR station at stations.npr.org. 